Hello and welcome back to the Long History Shot. I hope this podcast keeps you company in these lonely times as we all remain locked up in the safety of our homes while our brave doctors and scientists battle it out with the big bad virus. The human spirit has shown its resilience time and again in history and something tells me that this time too we shall succeed. Speaking of the human spirit, this episode is focused on the spiritual quest of one such extraordinary figure from history. The third Mughal king in India, Abul Fateh Jalaluddin Muhammad Akbar, commonly known as Emperor Akbar to the average Indian, not just for being an emperor, but more so because of the timeless stories of Akbar and his witty Hindu minister Birbal. There's hardly a child that grows up in India not hearing the Akbar Birbal stories. They usually have a common plot. The emperor puts to test the wit of his minister by throwing a difficult challenge at him, either in the form of a riddle or a task, and the minister risks losing the emperor's favor if he fails. However, each time the clever Birbal comes up with a witty solution or makes the emperor eat his own words and the story without exception ends with a laugh while it is difficult to say when these stories were written the earliest references are at least 2 centuries after akbar the origins of these stories however may have some roots in history for akbar's biographers tell us that birbal was remarkably close to the king and with regards to his wit birbal was honored with the title of kabi rai or the king of poets for his mastery over poetry and satire while the stories themselves are not factual they are one of the very few and perhaps the only examples of indians celebrating historical figures in a lighter vein there is something else however that sets apart this mughal king from the otherwise stereotypical image of a monarch especially the common indian memory of islamic kings for all the hard fighting and violence that akbar engaged in these being the only means of surviving in his times he also showed a remarkably curious temperament to learn from every religion and sect of his time before we jump into that aspect of his personality a little background on akbar's early life will help set the context akbar was born in a hindu king's house his father humayun had sought asylum with this king as he was being pursued by the armies of the suris driven out of india humayun entrusted his son to his wife's family which raised him in the shia tradition in persia the persian shias had retained some of the pre-islamic values of zoroastrian persia and this made their outlook wider and more tolerant it is here that akbar was introduced to the teachings of sul-e-kul or universal peace as a teenager akbar accompanied his father back to india although he lost his father just when it looked like india was decisively back in mughal hands he faced the vast armies of the suri dynasty without his father there to defend him though he had his maternal uncle and guardian bairam khan by his side someone who would look after his interests for a good part of his life akbar emerged victorious from this famed battle of panipat 
and from here he only grew in strength and maturity. He struck alliances where wars could be avoided and he used force only when no other alternative presented itself. As advised by his father, he took utmost care to not hurt the religious sentiments of the larger Hindu population by either allowing cow slaughter or imposing the hated jazia tax on Hindu pilgrims. Akbar was also able to act on his father's advice because he had a more tolerant Shia administration. The Shias are an important sect in Islam just like the Sunnis and owing to the support given by the Shia ruler of Persia, Humayu and after him Akbar had to pledge their allegiance to the Persian Shah and his faith. However, all was not easy for the young king and he faced betrayal from his Shia guardian Bairam Khan which also led him to dismiss his Shia administration and replace it with Sunni bureaucrats. For a brief period of about 10 years, Akbar's rule reverted back to some of the darker periods under earlier fanatic rulers. The hated Jazia tax was imposed on Hindu pilgrims. Shia philosophers were banished or beheaded. Madarsas and mosques mushroomed everywhere in his kingdom. Cow slaughter was no longer banned and power was concentrated in the hands of his Sunni Sadra or head of justice. This is not a criticism of Sunnis as much as a comment on the order of the day when politics and religion were so strongly intertwined that a king could not afford to rule without following the interpretation of law as per the religious scriptures, in this case the Sharia law. However, all of this changed when a series of scandals devastated his trust in this new group of lawmakers and the scams were uncovered almost everywhere within the government, including the highest office of the Sadra, Abdul Nabi himself. Once again, the old adage of absolute power corrupting absolutely was proven right. Also, Akbar had grown tired of the criticism that was leveled at him from the hardliners within the Sunni group. Despite being the king, he had been accused of a number of non-Islamic behaviours and actions, ranging from cheap pot shots taken at his habit of shaving his beard to something as serious as accusing him of destroying copies of the holy book, the Quran, and shutting down mosques and madrasas. The reality was that Akbar had taken into consideration Islamic law and only then based on a practical need to undo the damage being done to the real idea of Islam he had banned the unauthorized establishment of mosques and madrasas and he had also ordered the destruction of literature that carried falsified messages. The exposure of the scams gave him the opportunity he had been long awaiting. And when something as grievous as the embezzlement of funds provided for the Hajj pilgrimage was added to the list of offenses, Akbar dismissed the Sunni administration lock, stock and barrel though not before inflicting severe punishments on those guilty, while some of the guilty imams were thrown into the fast-flowing Yamuna, others were sold off in slave markets. To prevent such disastrous concentration of power in the future, he broke up the administration into six geographic divisions, reserving the final say with himself in critical matters such as sentencing someone to death or awarding land grants. Having settled matters in this manner and reinstated the Shias in his administration, Akbar turned his mind to the pursuit of philosophical and theological questions 
that had been forming in his mind, it would not be wrong to say that these questions may have arisen from the experiences that Akbar underwent over two decades of managing such a vast and complex kingdom. Ironically, it would be one of his military campaigns that would show Akbar a solution for his spiritual quest. It was a campaign in the eastern province of Bengal, where Akbar learned that his defeated enemy, Sultan Kararani, was a pious man who used to spend long nights in the company of a hundred holy men, listening to their discourses, and by day he would be back in his seat, managing the affairs of his state. Akbar was impressed and inspired by this example. On his return to Fatehpur, the town that he had embellished with the most breathtaking works of architecture, he ordered yet another special structure to be erected. This would become Akbar's treasured space, where he could concentrate his mind on higher problems than making more revenue or warding off another threat to his kingdom. It was aptly named the Ibadat Khana or the place of worship. The actual location of the Ibadat Khana has been a matter of debate as today's Fatehpur is a maze of old architectural monuments amidst a burgeoning tourism centre. However, archaeologists have managed to excavate a structure that has been found to closely resemble the Ibadat Khana as shown in some of the surviving paintings of it. These paintings also show Akbar amid many learned scholars who congregated in the Ibadat Khana. One can almost see every religion of Akbar's time in these paintings, be it Jesuit priests, Zoroastrian priests, Jain scholars, Hindu Brahmins, or the Shia and Sunni men of learning. The Ibadat Khana, although did not start with free access to all religions and sects, Akbar started out by inviting only the Sunni scholars, as his offices were still run by them when the Ibadat Khana was built. However, he began to realize that their outlook was too narrow to answer some of the questions he posed. Therefore, he widened the doors of the Ibadat Khana to also let in Shia scholars. At times, the debates between these men of the book turned so aggressive that Akbar had to warn them with expulsion. He had his trusted aides like Birbal and Abu Fazl oversee the different debates that raged within this assembly. While Akbar himself moved about in the four halls of the Ibadat Khana to partake in some of the arguments or even adjudicate in case of a tie. Akbar's religious outlook being wider than most Muslim kings, he quite soon found himself deeply influenced by the words of his minister, Birbal. This trusted aid of the king impressed upon him the philosophy behind worshipping the sun and other celestial bodies, which led to Akbar worshipping the sun each morning and even having verses composed by a Brahmin scholar in praise of the sun. Akbar also ensured that he wore the same colours as advised by the horoscope for that day. Such changes in Akbar's lifestyle raised serious concerns in Muslim circles. There was already a great deal of discomfort given the rising number of Hindu nobles, artists and military men in the Mughal court. At least four out of the nine gems of his court, or Navratna as they were called, were Hindus. Whether it was the music maestro Tansen or the painter Daswanath, Akbar made no distinction when it came to judging a man by his merit. 
Also, Akbar had appointed Hindu doctors like Mahadev and Chandrasen as his chief physician and surgeon respectively. Akbar's marriages with Rajput princesses had also brought many of the Hindu customs and festivals into the royal household, including celebration of Deepavali and Rakshabandhan. It is also said that Jahangi's marriage was conducted with the Hindu ritual of lighting a holy fire. Therefore, Akbar's newfound habits soon gave rise to rumours of him abandoning Islam and turning Hindu. This could not have been further from the truth. Because Akbar had no such intentions, and to his dying breath, he remained a Muslim. However, he did make an attempt at combining the best of all the sects and faiths that he came into contact with. To realize this vision, he founded a common sect within the domain of Sufism. He named it Dine Ilahi, or Faith of Divinity. This is what made Akbar stand out from a long line of sultans who had ruled India before him. While Akbar is remembered as having established a new religion named Dine Ilahi, it is important to note that this was not a religion and certainly not one outside the boundaries of Islam. It was more like a close circle of Akbar's hand-picked few. Quite literally, Akbar allowed only those into this community who passed his personal interview and to make sure that he didn't cause suspicion of conversion amongst his Hindu subjects, he also disallowed any non-Muslim from becoming an Ilahian, with the exception of his friend and confidant, Birbal. If Akbar had wanted to establish a new religion, he would not only have opened it for people of all faiths, but also used his state machinery for its promotion and growth. Akbar did neither, and kept the number of followers quite limited. Even at its peak, the deen did not have more than a few hundred members. The admitted had to accept ten principles that were largely centered around maintaining universal peace and being inclusive of all faiths and religions. There were also rules that had to be followed, which included giving up eating flesh of another animal and joining traditional feasts such as those given out after funeral ceremonies. For an lion to grow in degrees, he would have to give up one worldly pleasure to earn such a degree, the highest being four degrees. As if to set an example, Akbar himself gave up eating non-vegetarian food, banned hunting, banned animal slaughter on nearly half the days in a year, and forbade many other vices that he perceived as spiritually unhealthy. This was completely uncharacteristic of any king of his times, whether Hindu, Muslim or otherwise, especially when power was employed to enjoy all kinds of sensuous pleasures. Akbar even took to sleeping for less than three hours, and he would often be seen in deep meditative spells facing the sun in the early hours of the morning. The vegetarianism of Akbar is attributed to his deep engagement with a Jain monk, Hari Vijay, whom Akbar invited from his monastery in Gujarat to Fatehpur. Even today, an Adishwar temple in Kathiawad region has a long inscription attributed to Akbar's patronage to the sect. Akbar honoured the monk with a land grant in Fatehpur. Likewise, Guru Ramdas received a land grant from Akbar, where stands the golden temple of Amritsar today, the holiest shrine of the Sikhs. 
Akbar's other connections outside Islam included his repeated encounters with Christian missionaries, who sent at least three missions to Agra, attempting to convert the great Mughal. While none of the missions proved successful, had they been so, it would have perhaps changed the history of Christendom and the world itself. So now the question in your mind must be that what happened to the Dinayalai and Akbar's dream of combining the best of all religions? Well, Akbar was not trying to sponsor or promote a particular religion or faith. He seems to have made this effort for increasing religious tolerance more than anything. Even the ten principles that he laid down for the Dinayalai talk of respect for all religions, simplicity in living, abstinence, or moderation of desires, and so on. Nowhere does it talk of growing or increasing the membership to this sect or show any other religion in a bad light based on a different point of view. This leads one to think that Akbar was probably trying to develop an inclusive culture, especially amongst the key members of his family and court, in the hope that this would also prolong the rule of the Mughals over this land that housed multiple faiths and identities. After all, he was the first Mughal king to get a fair attempt at ruling India, unlike his father and grandfather, who suffered much shorter stints compared to him. Akbar had other challenges as well when it came to practically institutionalizing this belief system. His own son Jahangir was in open rebellion against him, and this conflict between father and son claimed the life of Abul Fazl one of the pillars of the Ibadat Khana and the Dine-Ilahi. This close companion of Akbar had compiled a biography Akbar Nama and its supplement Ene Akbari. But before the scribe could create a detailed narrative of Akbar's vision for the Dine-Ilahi, he lost his life to Jahangir's fury. Also, the Sunni factions within Akbar's court, such as his close companion Badawni, did not see much reason to carry forward Akbar's legacy that spoke of tolerance for other faiths, which appeared as nothing but blasphemous to the hardliners. The Shias did not remain in power after Akbar's death either, and Jahangir was anything but a stable ruler. The whimsical prince, who was almost always under the spell of intoxication, did not have the capacity to carry forward his father's work with the same vigour. This does not mean that all of Akbar's efforts were wasted, the coming together of so many enlightened individuals under one roof led to the undertaking of some important projects that took Indian culture far and wide. Akbar held a deep admiration for Hindu literature. Therefore, he had some of the greatest literary works of this country translated into a language that would enable more people outside the Hindu faith also to become familiar with this content. He had the Ramayana and Mahabharata translated into Persian and illustrated by the most talented calligraphers and artists of his time. To ensure the interpretation of these epics was accurate, he invited Hindu scholars to join this project and personally participated in the translation work. The Shia scholar Faizi translated Yog Vashisht, the story of Ram's early life in the ashram of the sage Vashisht. Fezi also translated classics like Naladamayanti, Bhatti Singhasan and Leelavati. Haji Ibrahim Sarhindi, another scholar, translated the Atharvaved, while Mullah Sheri worked on the Harivansh. 
other than scriptures, Akbar also integrated into the Mughal culture customs like fire worship, sun worship, and personal habits like wearing the girdle when in company of Zoroastrians, or a tilak on his forehead when with the Hindus. While these may sound like eccentric acts of a monarch who had nothing more to conquer, it is not true. At no point did Akbar loosen his grip on running his empire, nor did he ever get carried away to make any regrettable political decisions. If anything, Akbar's actions made the Chuktai banner of the Mughals more acceptable than any other foreign power. Within Akbar's reign itself, the Mughals had successfully lost their label of being foreigners. And it is no wonder that even when the Mughal Empire ended, Indians considered it as the end of Indian rule and not that of outsiders. The idea of a central ruler who would commit himself to not only merely gathering revenue and returning to his homeland, but become part of that country's culture was made real by Akbar. And his example flowed into the Mughal dynasty with the aberration of Aurangzeb alone. Even the staunchest enemies of the Mughals, the Marathas, fought on the field of Panipat in 1761 against the Afghan king Abdali to keep the Mughal banner flying in India. There couldn't be a greater legacy that Akbar could have asked for. While the Dini-Elahi did not go any farther, it stands out as a noble experiment. In a time when empires clashed elsewhere in the world to not integrate but incinerate another faith, whether it was the Catholics and the Protestants or the Shias and the Sunnis. It is an example that remains relevant even in today's times when religious intolerance and open acts of communal violence erupt in every country, rich or poor. Maybe we need more leaders in this age who would attempt to recognize the best in every faith and bring harmony to our world. Perhaps it is time for another Dine Ilahi. With this we come to the end of the episode and I hope you enjoyed the story of Akbar and his philosophical experiments. Watch out for more interesting episodes on the long history shot with Ranjit and also do visit the website where you will find not just podcasts but also some interesting blogs, news and updates in the field of history. See you again with another interesting episode and until then, goodbye. Keep listening, keep exploring.